any parent who you talk to would always say of, of a neurodivergent kid that even if they had really great programs for their kid to do after school or over the summers, they had to do so much work to make that happen, or they had to put a lot of money into that to make that happen. So thinking about just time spent, you know, we talk about screen time, time spent with media, time spent doing other things, that's not always so readily available for these kids and families. I'm Debbie Reber and welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, supporting and informing parents raising differently wired kids. Many of our kids spend a lot of time engaging on screens and with technology. And I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like this is an ever changing and fast changing landscape and one that can be hard to stay on top of. Whether we're talking about assistive technology, videos, games or social media, These forms of media continue to offer new ways of interacting, developing relationships, and even exploring identity. And this has added to the complexity of raising neurodivergent kids. So I invited Dr. Mara Alper, a researcher on the social and cultural implications of communication technologies with a focus on disability, digital media, and children and families tech use, to join me to talk about how we should be thinking about our kids' relationship with screens and tech. I reached out to Meryl after reading her new book, Kids Across the Spectrums, Growing Up Autistic in the Digital Age, which explores the often misunderstood technology practices of young autistic people, as well as what it means to be social in a hypermediated society. So that is what we get into. The factors that influence a child's relationship to media, how digital media is creating spaces for kids to develop their identities online, and what we parents, schools should be doing to better educate kids on safely interacting with online communities. We also talked about fandoms and how they have become a part of identity and belonging development and why every parent needs to spend time understanding how their kids are using and consuming media. A little bit more about my guest, Dr. Meryl Alper is an associate professor of communication studies at Northeastern University. In addition to the book we're talking about today, She's also the author of Digital Youth with Disabilities and the award-winning Giving Voice, Mobile Communication, Disability, and Inequality. Merrill draws on nearly 20 years of professional experience in the children's media industry as a researcher, strategist, and consultant with organizations such as Sesame Workshop, PBS Kids, Nickelodeon, and Disney. If your child, autistic or otherwise neurodivergent, regularly engages with screens and tech, you will get a lot out of this episode. Oh, and as Meryl shared at the end of the interview, her publisher, MIT Press, has made a digital version of her book, Kids Across the Spectrums, available as a free download. They really just want to get this book into the hands of parents and educators who would benefit from it. I have a link to Meryl's site where you can grab the book on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at tiltparenting.com slash session 356. All right, here is my conversation with Meryl. Hey, Meryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. This is super interesting. I think it ties so many things that we talk about in this parenting community. And you are 
an expert in such a unique way. Like we've talked about screen time from how to form healthy screen time habits and things like that, but we haven't really gotten into what's really going on, especially with autistic kids and their use of media and technology. I want to talk all about your book, but before we do that, can you just give us a little bit more of your own personal introduction into the research and the work that you do and why you're so drawn to doing that work? Yeah. So I started off my professional life in the children's media industry. And I say professional life. I mean, back in college, I worked on one of the first National Science Foundation grants to study digital media and kids. It was, it was a new thing then. This is back in the early 2000s. And had the real gift of starting off having an internship that first summer, second summer in college, in the education and research department at Sesame Workshop. So you sort of are starting with the best and the brightest, and that really infused everything that I've done going forward, thinking about how do we make the best possible media, the best possible choices around media for kids, knowing that they're going to be spending time with it. So how do we make that a fulfilling and rich experience? And not only that, but in the spirit of Sesame, I think, also thinking about who gets to see themselves on screen who's a part of the audience, really as inclusive as possible. And so when I started my PhD, I knew that I wanted to do something research-oriented and that to go further, that's what I was going to need to do. So after my time at, at Sesame, I then also worked at Disney Channel on the more business side of things and for Nickelodeon, also as a researcher on some of their preschool shows that all of them had a real diversity focus. I wanted to take that into my PhD. But of course, TV wasn't just the only, at that point now, this is in 2010, the iPad had come out. And I knew that that was going to absolutely change all of the different ways that kids were consuming, creating, sharing content, and doing so at even younger ages. But what I didn't realize until I started doing more research was it wasn't just about age but also about developmental stage and ability, because you now have the capacity where you didn't have to, if you were going to be a kid using a computer, mind you, smartphones had existed at that time, but now you don't need a keyboard. You don't need a mouse. All of the sort of fine motor skills, all of the sort of planning that you would have needed to be able to make choices or to affect a computer, those have now been drastically lowered. But then I realized also at that point, here I have all this background really in thinking about diverse learners and different kinds of backgrounds. But I had had minimal training, I would say, I guess, in thinking about developmental differences. Um, while I was working at Nickelodeon, I had in sort of off hours and weekends gotten a, a certificate in early childhood education from UCLA. But even then, I think that there was a sort of separation out of sort of special or different learners. It was one day maybe that we spent in a, the course of a curriculum. At that point for me, maybe I wasn't even looking for those classes at that time, but I, I felt like I didn't have that background. So when I started spending more time taking classes especially at USC, USC is where I went to get my PhD, has an amazing occupational therapy department. And I started to just take any classes that had technology in the title or that were going to expose me to that. And I came to realize there's this whole wide world of technology that in one sense was separate from typically developing kids. I mean, you're thinking about special adaptive software, switches, hardware for how you might you know, manipulate a computer, but then also here again, were these mobile devices that it wasn't really clear. And also there was a lot of tension around, are these 
devices that are either like for school or for assistive purposes, or are they for fun? And it turns out they're really for both, but people trying to really spend a lot of time separating those out. I'd focused for my dissertation on non-speaking kids with a range of developmental disabilities. So some of those were kids with Down syndrome, some with kids with Engelmann's syndrome, but also a lot of those kids were kids on, on the autism spectrum. So for that work, I was very interested in that particular kind of use and really the claims about here, this technology is so liberating. It gives people voices. And my work I found actually, it really depends because it's technology and that comes with a whole host of other you know, strings attached to it. But I was really motivated, I think, by the fact that here's all this all these other things that the same technology can do, but nobody's looked at that either. You know, they're using iPads and I've looked at this one specific purpose, but not all these other ones. And when I went to go look at the research, it seemed to me that autistic, and I should say also really it's neurodivergent kids more broadly, because there's also such an overlap between kids who maybe they get diagnosed with one thing. I'm sure you've probably, you know, talked about this. They get one diagnosis and another, turns out they have both, <laughs> and that changes everything in terms of kind of the supports. But I realized that you know, neurodivergent children's uses of media and technology hadn't been given the same kinds of treatment as typically developing kids in my field's really rich tradition of the field of communication. I'm a kind of social scientist interested in you know, what kids are, again, kind of getting out of media and how it can be made better. But it hadn't really been given the same you know, energy and resources as, you know, typically developing kids and trying to understand their successes and struggles growing up in the digital age. So in terms of personal connections, you know, I, I don't identify as being neurodivergent. I'm not like the mom or a sibling of neuro, my mom, but not a, that I know of at this point of neurodivergent kids. But to me, it's about inclusion more broadly and making inclusion more inclusive, but not just for inclusion's sake. Cause I think also studying these children's experiences make this field of media and technology even better. Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to get into your book, Kids Across the Spectrums, Growing Up Autistic in the Digital Age. You reached out to me on LinkedIn. I was like, oh yeah, I need to read that book because before I got into it and started reading, I realized that I really have such little actual information about what's true, right? Like, I think we hear these myths or ideas or stereotypes, you know, and that can be really dysregulating, or it can be super regulating, or this is where you find your people, or it just seems like there's a lot of generalizations out there. And so you really went into it. So tell us about the book and how you approached researching it, and what you were really hoping to do through it. Yeah. So while I don't have the same personal experiences in terms of parenting, I certainly have had through the conversations that I had during my dissertation, and then just anybody that I know that I had mentioned talking about this always has stories for me if they themselves are a parent too. And as somebody who, who had read you know, all of this and knows and done research on neurotypical kids, knowing that there's bound to be this seed of okay, there's some shared experiences. It's not everything that autistic or neurodivergent kids are doing with media and technology that's going to be radically different. Well, everybody's watching TV. That's also one of these myths I think people don't realize. So about social media, digital media. TV is still across the board. The top time spent with media is television. Television takes different forms, but still, number one. Everybody's watching YouTube. Not everybody is on TikTok or Snapchat, but increasing numbers are. 
So I was really, you know, motivated and drawn to the fact that we need to really separate things out. If there are these similarities, what are the differences? And what do those differences stem from? First of all, let me sort of get to how I then approach doing that research. So I am somebody who has training in a, in a bunch of different methodologies, be it surveys or like focus group with parents or sort of designing technologies with and for kids. But I, as a tool, think that there's a real value in and surveying parents too, but spending time in families spaces, especially for this population, when we're, it's not just the media, the device, or the content on the device, but the physical space that kids choose to spend time in or that, or that families have curated or crafted around their children, it's just as important, I think, to me as the device and as the ritual and the space around it. So ethnography for me was the mode of choice. So over the course of, we're talking about 2013 is when the data for my dissertation that wasn't included in the dissertation and the and my first book starts. So about 2013, through right on the cusp of the pandemic. So 20, spring of 2020 and, and a little bit crept in there, which in the conclusion of the book, where I think like around the time of when the book came out, it's like, oh, the, you know, the pandemic is changing everything. And I think it has reoriented things, but then some things are back to how they were. And we were living in this time where it's both and. Yeah. So from about seven courses, seven years, going into people's houses and interviewing parents there, observing kids, doing the things that they like to do with media. Because I, you know, I don't want to put observe kids in a position where they are, yes, having a meltdown or dysregulated. I want to see the things you like to do or the things you regularly do at the times of day that you regularly do them. I don't want to disrupt your routine, because for some families, that's really important to not veer from, but also to the extent that I could interview the kids themselves as much as possible. I was not able to do that in a lot of cases. Some cases, kids who had access to, who were non-speaking, for example, who had the ability to communicate through AAC or uh, augmented and alternative communication technologies or through like spelling or through typing, able to interview them. A lot of kids who just frankly, have been, this is what I talked about in my last book, just failed by insurance, healthcare, education, and not having the communication tools that they need to be able to do something like an interview with me. So in those cases, more observation leaning. So what I found, I think a big takeaway is that, yes, there are these differences, absolutely, between neurodivergent and neurotypical kids. But those differences are not just because of neurodivergence. It's not just because of autism. It's not just because of ADHD. I spent time with the families of over 60 kids. There's a good portion of those that were siblings. And I talk about that in the book. It wasn't just because one group is neurotypical and one group isn't. The backgrounds of kids on the spectrum, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, class, culture, religion, immigration status, all of these, and you could say the same of neurotypical kids, shape their experiences as neurodivergent media users. So the questions of, can their parents afford the internet? And if not, what other choices are they making? What devices are they using? What kinds of physical space do they have at home to move around in? So talking about dysregulation and media use, you know, is this a cramped apartment where the ways in which they are watching are physically constrained and so the time spent can really get them out of sorts in a way that maybe a kid who's roaming around and, you know, 
from a number of feet away is peripherally watching the screen, but they're able to get that, get that sensory stimulation at the same time that they're watching. And maybe also that means that their parent from this open space is able to watch at the same time versus a parent, you know, in these closed cramped spaces can't view at the same time. So the parent can't be as engaged. So really it's like multidimensional calculus in your head thinking about this kid's watching the same thing as some other kid, but this is a vastly different background. To what extent do their parents believe in the use of media as a reward for good behavior or something to be restricted, you know, as a punishment or withheld to elicit a desired behavior? That speaks to, I think, some different overall parenting values around reward and restriction, which is absolutely related to like culture and, and one's own upbringing and stuff. So, that is something that really came to me. But the, you know, the main areas that I talk about in the book are, you know, again, where are these similarities and differences? I break it down into three main areas of cultural belonging, social relationships, and physical embodiment. So these, these three different areas, and in those, each of those has two chapters, the cultural belonging, you know, where do you belong in this world? I have a whole chapter on identity and the role of media in identity of being neurodivergent, a whole chapter on learning, because you think about school as the main space where you learn how to belong the rules of society and, and interacting with others. What does learning look like in relation to media? for these young people in terms of social relationships, one on family dynamics and parenting, one on friends and friendship and media and all of that. And then in the physical embodiment part, which maybe in those chapters, if I was doing a general ethnography of kids in media use, wouldn't have maybe shown up in those books, but one chapter just on emotions and the ways that media plays a role in emotional, not just regulation or managing emotions, but understanding what emotions are, recognizing them in others, the ways that media can affect emotions and emotional development, and then a whole chapter on the senses and sensory development and thinking about media as sensory relief, as sensory stressor, and all these different ways in which when we say the senses, what do we even mean by that? There's so much that we could get into, and all of these are so relevant and juicy. But you are clearly a researcher, and you're into this stuff, which I love, and it comes through in the book, but also your book's really readable, which isn't always the case when you're reading something that's data-driven and so research-driven. So I just want to put that out there for listeners. And I want to get into some of the concepts. We're going to take a quick break, and then let's talk about identity. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. 
There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. The first chapter of your book is talking about identity, and I thought that was such a great place to start. It's something we've talked a little bit on the show when we had Devorah Heitner talking about her new book, Growing Up in Public, and what's happening when our kids are forming their identity online. I'm curious to know if there was something that really surprised you or struck you when you were exploring how autistic kids develop and create an identity through their use of tech. Yeah. So I should say the age range that I was focused on for this book, and I can talk a little bit later about what my newer work is, but you know, I was focused on three to 13. So when we talk about media and technology, the extent to which these kids are online and networked is quite different than thinking about the sort of 14 and up group. So thinking about identity or community or belonging through media and technology, a lot of this is mass media. A lot of this is what do you read in books? What do you see on TV or in movies? And yes, also what communities are you a part of through your gaming or through some of these other kind of ways in which kids can be online and in a way that is accessible to you. So I think I was not surprised, but reading a lot about identity and kids in media, that a lot of it does go more into the kind of networked side of things. But important to keep in mind for this group, yes, you, absolutely the ways in which for some of these kids, the platform Scratch, which is MIT moderated a kind of community for kids to learn how to code and to develop games. And it's also, I think it's a very positive in terms of, I'm not kind to some other platforms in this book, but as a space that is moderated and is regulated and kids are able to connect with other kids who maybe have a form of kind of a difference and they can find one another in this way, but it's, they're centered around creation. Yeah, that that can be a fantastic space for kids to express who they are and the ways in which their understanding of their neurodivergence might not come out in the ways that an adult might 
frame it or describe it, but coming out relative to how they consume content or their preferences for creativity or the kinds of characters that they are drawn to in fiction and maybe creating a game around that or a a digital creation or something. But also another thing that I guess would surprise me is we think about representation in media. And for a lot of these kids, I think there are nowadays we have, it's a real blossoming. Nothing is perfect. There's lots of different things for kids to be able to draw on and see, oh, that is me reflected. And the power of that in terms of your self-confidence, in terms of your feeling like you belong is so important. But for these kids, there's still a really, a really long, long way to go. But I think what's surprising is even in the absence of that, even the absence of characters where you're like, wow, that's a lead character in this TV show or in this book that has the same experience that I do. Kids pick up on if it's not my exact diagnosis even, or that character doesn't have a diagnosis, but there's something about them that I connect with, they will glom onto that. They will find that thing. And that thing, they will, these are kids on the spectrum, some also with ADHD, able to articulate what it is about that character or that book that they do see themselves in. There's a whole portion about the book Wonder in there where, again, this is not a character that she shares the same diagnosis, but kids who would script, this is from the movie and the book, but would script lines that would talk about this book with a real passion and only in talking with their parents to know that they'd been bullied and had these really terrible experiences in school to know that, oh, that is why this kid is able to tell me so much about this book and not so much about a lot of other things or or not even to communicate clearly around them. But this, they, they really have a conviction or a passion about. It says that it, it's there's a power in, they, they will find anything that they can find to identify with. That doesn't mean that people are off the hook for creating characters or storylines that are inclusive, that speak to a wide variety of neurodivergent experiences. But kids are crafty. And there's a kind of resilience in finding those characters, even ones that we can think about, you know, like Sheldon, for example, in Big Bang Theory. Not a lot of kids were watching that, but there were some who did come out where like, oh, this character has some similarities to me. But, you know, that's not a character in the show that he's not named as being autistic. It's more implicit than than explicit. But also thinking about creation tools, tools, you know, it isn't just consuming, but it's also creating. And so kids using whatever digital resources, if it's like PowerPoint, you know, Google Slides, presentations of making books about yourself, or for again, some of these more kids with more sophisticated skills or talents, you know, like books and and kind of self-publishing books, there's more tools than ever at kids' capacity to both, yes, find other kids, but to do some of that internal sort of private work with the media that's available to them. Would fandom be part of that identity development as well? Because I know that there are these subcultures of different media properties or characters that really attract autistic kids. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely came out. And I'd say that it's there are pros and cons, but I'm thinking of one kid from that I spent time with who was really into, I think a lot of kids are into Percy Jackson, a character that the kid was saying, oh, you know, this character, there's all these jokes about how he's, you know, Vulcan, or, that there's like a Spock reference and this character is different and I know it, it's an in-joke, but other kinds of fandoms too that the kids find that there's a connection with. But at the same time, I get into this a little bit in my emotions sort of chapter, but this can also be very stressful 
for, especially for kids who have a, like a real high, the empathy or the way that they pick up on others' emotions and then can internalize those emotions in a way that, that can be highly stressful for them in a way that maybe adults or people who aren't in this space don't realize that the stakes can feel very high because you have people who are, have competing passions or dueling passions. And so these, these can be spaces that are full of interest and possible connection, but can also create a lot of stress for kids in ways that might not be so readily apparent to somebody who's not a parent. But if you're not a parent who I guess is themselves a part of these kinds of communities or, you know, intense focused passions around topics that might not also realize how stressful it can be. And at the same time, hard to separate yourself from them. Cause again, if this is an area that you're very passionate about and it motivates you, it, it includes all of these things. So fascinating. I want to talk about, a few other myths. We'll take a quick break. And then I want to know more about the myth of whether or not technology isolates autistic kids. We'll do that in a minute. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So one of the myths that I think is out there and is true for all kids, right? That technology is isolating kids. Maybe autistic kids or neurodivergent kids are more strongly attracted to engaging with technology. That might be a myth right then and there. But 
how would you respond to someone who is concerned that technology is further isolating kids who may already feel othered or alienated by the environments that they're in? Yeah, this is it's a very popular question and it's so layered. So I think I would say to anyone parent from the get-go that it isn't just some about whatever parenting choices you are or are not making in your home. That any parent who you talk to would always say of, of a neurodivergent kid that even if they had really great programs for their kid to do after school or over the summers, they had to do so much work to make that happen. Or they had to put a lot of money into that to make that happen. So thinking about just time spent, you know, we talk about screen time, time spent with media, time spent doing other things, that's not always so readily available for these kids and families. Or even just the time spent with effective therapies that might help your child with emotional regulation or with planning or with, I talked to, I think, a number of kids and families that were dealing with trauma related to experiences that they'd had in school. And so all of that, again, wraps around time spent with media. So when we think about social isolation, what other kinds of connections to community or connections to friend making does a child have? And maybe that's through siblings, maybe that's through the efforts of parents, but, or maybe, and maybe that's through a school there's, I think, a double-edged sword, but are they in a classroom where they are the only child that they know of to be neurodivergent, or are they in a classroom full of other kids that are like that? And to what extent are the parents connected? Or I definitely talked to parents who, you know, they only knew that just their child in the classroom was neurodivergent, but not others. And they felt isolated as a parent from the other parents. So the kid maybe felt included, but the parents themselves felt isolated because they felt like the other parents knew and were not including their child on that basis. Inclusion, it doesn't just always mean wonderful rainbows and unicorns. There is work of that. So when it comes to media and all that and connection, you know, thinking about gaming in particular, especially during the pandemic, what I picked up on at least at the start of the pandemic, this is true for typically developing kids, for boys in particular, Gaming itself is where there's a lot of hanging out happening that maybe, I mean, gaming has been around for a long time, where, you know, the after school in-person gaming, but at a time when people are so overscheduled or people don't live necessarily right next door to one another to go over to one another's houses, the remote space of gaming, the socially networked gaming is another really important, especially for boys, kind of social space. Now, not all of these kids, though, especially neurodivergent kids are necessarily doing that social gaming. But for some who are, it is a really important step for them in belonging and being connected. Now, for ones who aren't necessarily gaming with kids that they know, and we think you have the kind of platforms where those might be happening, the heightened risk of being the victim of aggression and being sort of made to feel lesser than is a real concern. And that's something it wasn't kind to some platforms in the book. I, I think there's a lot to be said about Roblox and as a platform that to me, I consider to be like the YouTube of gaming and we don't just let kids do whatever on YouTube or we shouldn't. I don't think so there's a lot that is not for kids in a really explicit way. Like Roblox, when I was, I don't know if this has been cleaned up, but there were games where you could simulate dating and there was definitely adults intermixing with kids in these games or games where super violent like prison breakout 
games. I saw one was watching two autistic brothers playing and it was like somebody like shiving a guard, like just truly explicit stuff. But you think Roblox, it's blocky. It's like Minecraft. It's not like Minecraft. But parents don't always know these things because they're very immersive. Those kinds of experiences, they are highly exciting. And when you're more excited, you're more likely to be gripped and staying on screen because all of the sort of interception is telling you to sort of be, be right there. So I think that when it comes to the, the social dynamics, we have to think about the bigger picture, how connected are these kids more broadly, but also thinking about the ways in which, and thinking about games in particular, it's never just about games anymore because games are connected to all these other platforms. YouTube, I mean, YouTube is a space where you can, you don't have to play. You can just watch or even Twitch, you can peripherally experience. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because kids are also picking up maybe gaming tips. But I, I saw a lot of kids for whom social interaction might have been scared, like intimidating or a lot, but watching other gamers talk to one another or interact wasn't a replacement, I don't think, for being social, but it was a way to learn and observe other people socially interacting in a way that you can pause, you can step away, you can pay closer attention to, you can observe. So the observation of watching people gamers kind of socially interact, it can be more of a building block. It's not either or. It's not you're either being social in a game or not. You're either being social, not playing a game you know, offline or not. But these other spaces where it can be more a kind of scaffolding, but that requires parents to know what their kids are watching, which not every parent is really so excited to spend how many hours watching gamers play with one another. But it's something that kids do on playdates that I saw and, and talked with autistic kids about that being a thing that they like to do. So I think that social content can take a lot of different forms. And it's important to think about any of that really, truly within the individual context of your child. I really appreciate how you just recognize that every family is different and is navigating different cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic status, their own lived experience as a child and, you know, the way that they were raised and financial implications. There's just so much in here. And it helps me to think about, especially when considering for many people, this seems like a black and white issue, right? That either technology use is good for kids or it's not. So I guess as a way to start to wrap up, for parents who are listening, and we've only just scratched the surface on what's in the book, we can't go through the whole book today. But is there something that you would want parents listening who are really struggling with how to navigate their neurodivergent or their autistic kids relationship with technology to consider to think about as they make decisions about how to show up for the child that they have in this digital age? Yeah, I could break it down by a lot of different by gender, but I think in terms of age ranges. So I mentioned that this book was for kids three to 13. And that I'm also doing, I'm doing work now that is focused on a little bit older people on the spectrum. But so I would think about kids who are maybe in this kind of three to eight range, thinking about screens and and particularly again, like TV as this space, I would take advantage of the fact that there are going to be coming up more shows, at least I know personally, based on my current work with PBS Kids, more shows that are going to be showing an array of neurodivergent young people and that that is a real resource. I would say that it's also a resource for parents that typically develop you know, neurotypical kids that for you to also develop empathy and understanding. But 
those I think are going to be real potential opportunities for having some of these more complex conversations that are harder. A lot of these kids I think need very concrete examples as the starting off point, at least for having these kind of conversations. So I would say to be on the lookout for those. Not that that happened all the time with them. Because for example, Sesame Street did introduce its Julia, its autistic Muppet. So I think there's a jumping off point for there. For sort of this then like age of nascent gamers or interest in sort of YouTube around some of this other, you know, more mature things. I think it's a really important time where media literacy as a term gets thrown around as meaning a lot of things and hard to pin down. But I would really think about and asking in your kid's school to what extent that's happening and to what extent that is that like education around that is happening and to what extent that education is catered or specific to your own child's neurodivergence. This happens to researchers all the time. I feel like I wrote a fantastic grant application to study media literacy education for neurodiverging kids, didn't get grant funded. Still think it's very worth understanding because for, for some of these kids, there's some research that initial research that shows some neurodivergent kids might be more risk averse actually when it comes to online, like stranger danger stuff or not getting yourself into situations potentially, but then at the same time, not as having as great an understanding of privacy settings and security. So the ability to block somebody to not contact you, that that might take a lot more walking through cognitively to be able to do to prevent yourself from being in some of those riskier situations. Everybody's so vulnerable and needs protecting might have some real strengths, but at the same time, the way that the technology is designed might not be in your kid's favor to be able to prevent those situations from happening. So I think really kind of asking your, your school, is there this teaching going on? Because it isn't something that I believe should just be in the hands of parents. I don't, that's, it's, I think it's asking too much in this hypersaturated world, but I would also want to know to what extent is any of this being crafted or catered to kids who might not fully, some who might get it, but some who might not. And especially around, again, the design of technologies like TikTok that are absolutely designed to not have you leave. It's not created that way. It's not, you're not getting every third video, hey, take a break, put me down. That is not happening. You have to be the person that yourself says that. Or there's, you know, obviously all these tools now available to parents, like the Screen Time app and and Apple devices to try to engender that in your kid. But of course, that doesn't smoothly transition your kid out necessarily. It just shuts off and that's it, which itself can cause a meltdown. Anyway, so I'd say for that middle grade, you know, it's not just on you. Teachers have a lot going on. It isn't just about individual teachers. It happens at the district level, the state level, whatever. But why is there not more education around that that is catered to these kids? I think it needs to be more fully discussed. I can get more into the older kids stuff. But I think it's that these apps, there's a lot going on that can also be kids feeling like they belong to a community. There is a whole host of other potential negative effects. But there might also be that happening too, which isn't a bad thing either. Well, what I'm thinking as you're talking is that you have such a long career ahead of you because this is just going to become more and more relevant, I think, as technology evolves and our reliance on it as humans continues to grow and our understanding of the neurodivergent experience expands. So I congratulate you on choosing a really interesting uh, focus for your work. It's awesome. And I look forward to following you and seeing what you do next. Where can listeners learn more about you and your book? 
So I will say thankful to the folks at MIT Press who have made a digital version of the book freely available. So if you're somebody who wants a physical book, do have to purchase that. But if you're somebody who is cool with PDF scrolling on one of your devices, book is freely available. And it's my real hope that that, that circulates kind of word of mouth, I suppose, because I again, it's written in an accessible way. And wanting to speak yes to parents, but to therapists, to clinicians, to tech folks, that this is something that they they may think they know a lot about. And I'm not saying that they don't, but there's a lot more when you scratch the surface to, to dig into. I'm on LinkedIn as Meryl Alper. My website is MerylAlper.com. Then I have a links to some other press that I've done articles recently talk to some folks in Parents Magazine, Yahoo, about a whole host of things. So LinkedIn is a great way to just keep on top of things there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, listeners. The book, again, is called Kids Across the Spectrums, Growing Up Autistic in the Digital Age. I'm looking at Meryl's website right now, and I see the link right there. Read a free open access version through MIT Press Open to Direct program. That is so cool. So definitely check out Meryl's book. I will have all the relevant links and the other stuff that came up in our conversation in the show notes. So thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you. It was a really great experience to be in conversation with you too. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the resources we talked about, you can always go to the extensive show notes page on tiltparenting.com. There you'll find key takeaways, links to all the resources that were discussed, and even a full transcript of our conversation. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. And it was edited by my wonderful producer, Andrea Curtis Amasquita. If you want to support this show, please consider joining my Patreon campaign and making a small monthly contribution. Just go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting to learn more. If you want to follow Tilt on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, please take a minute to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps the show stay visible so others can easily find it. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about any of the parenting resources Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.